Hello and welcome to In Lockdown With, a podcast where I, playwright Kieran Fitzgerald, chats to emerging, established and experienced artists in the fields of theatre, film, television, dance and drama, from Wales and beyond, to find out more about their careers and to see how they've been coping during the coronavirus pandemic. Expect laughs, gossip, and an insight into the careers of some of Wales's best-known creatives. If you enjoy this podcast, please like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. Hello and welcome to In Lockdown with, with me, Kira Fitzgerald. Today my guest is Roger Williams. Hi Roger, how's things? Hello Kieran, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. How's lockdown going? Lockdown is has been quite pleasant. I'm starting to have enough of it now. <laughs> I've got a... Um, 10 year old son so um being a writer i'm quite used to having a house to myself during mm. the day um but um uh, my 10 year old has been at home um, my partner who's a teacher has been at home so i'm looking forward to getting a bit of um time to myself at home when lockdown finally finishes and we also um a few days before lockdown started we um we went to collect our new puppy. Oh, so wow. we've had um, um, a young Welsh sheepdog bounding around the oh, house trying to chew everything in sight. And of course, because of lockdown, she couldn't have her vaccinations and um, she's been trapped in the house oh, in the garden. No. So um, it's it's time for it to, as long as we're all safe and well, it's it's, it's time for a lockdown to, to be phased out, I think. Okay. And are you getting involved with homeschooling as well? Or is your partner doing most of it? No, I'm getting involved. It's interesting, really. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that um, having a teacher at home, um, I wouldn't have to do anything. But it seems I do. (laughs) (laughs) Because my partner is... um, going into school occasionally because right. they're one of the hub, hub schools for essential workers but um but also i think it's a bit of a busman's holiday having to teach your own child so um i've stepped up to the plate and um we've been reading every day which i think is the most important thing i can probably yeah. do with him is to foster uh, a love of reading even though he'd rather be on YouTube and on Roblox yeah. and all these other things that he likes he likes to he, he, he likes he likes to do um, but there yes I have become a teacher which my parents would have been very pleased about because they were both teachers and they always wanted me to be a teacher not a writer um, so uh, finally finally I'm happy. I, I want to start at the beginning if, if I can how did you first get interested in theatre and the arts? I always liked performance. I always liked spectacle. Um, my earliest memories of going to see shows and performances um, were actually when the um, when the circus used to come to town, and. Um, I loved that experience of going to the circus as a very, very young child and um, was slightly obsessed by circuses. I think, and I see this in my own son, we have phases in our childhood where we're particularly interested in one thing, one theme. So my son, has he's been through the planets. That was a massive thing. He was very interested and still is at the moment in currencies from around the world and fake money and things like that. And I think I had one period of my life where I was obsessed by circuses. All my toys were circuses. If there was a film about the circus on TV, I'd want to watch it and tape it and watch it again and watch it again. Um, So I think when I think about it carefully, I think probably this 
this um, business of creating entertainment, mm. which I think largely my job now is, um, started, started there. Um, my parents really only ever took us to pantomimes as, as children. Right. Um, but um, as a young child as well, I would create my own shows. So yeah. I'd corral all the children who lived near us um, on the estate where I grew up and um, we'd make a show. And I had a little tape recorder and um, I would have chosen uh, three or four songs that were in the chart and we would perform plays around those songs and dance routines right. and all that kind of malarkey. And I think from there, um, certainly going into secondary school when I was first exposed to the idea of drama as a subject, um, I was really able then to focus on the idea that um, um, drama and theatre was something that you could learn and practice and um, you, you could do the kinds of creative things I'd be doing within certain parameters. Um, within and, a more um, kind of structured thing? Like how you more structured it rather than it just being kind of an extension of like exploration or play or do you know what I mean? Is that the kind of thing that you mean? Yeah, yeah, I think I see it absolutely started in play, which is a great thing. Um when we see what's happening to the curriculum in Wales particularly, it's good that mm. educators are kind of acknowledging now that all of that play stuff is completely valid and should be encouraged and fostered. So it was very much taking, it very much starting from a place of um, creativity and play and it becoming something, as you say, which was more structured and guided. Um, and I wanted to perform, I, mm. I wanted to act. And I, for a long, long time, I wanted to be an actor. Um, and I had a drama teacher at my secondary school in Carmarthen called Jane Thomas, who was very good at, um, she was very strict, very firm, she was very good at inspiring us and directing us into um, areas where we were where we were strongest and um, yeah I wanted to act and she, she knew that I wanted to act and at some point had an idea that I would go to drama school and train to be an actor um, but as part of the work that we did with her as students she got us all to write as well and um, I wrote some pieces for my GCSE drama class, I think. And she said to me one day, do you know what? You're a much better writer than you are actor. And she meant it with love. Um, and um, from that point, really, I took that as, I took that as, as guidance that perhaps, you know, I should write some more. And I, perhaps mm. I am good at, at at writing and it was certainly something the, the English teachers in school were, were saying as well but it's interesting because I think schools generally think of creative writing as short story writing yes. prose and, and poetry so when somebody comes along and their dominant their dominant interest in terms of creative, creative writing is drama I think that's highly unusual and I was just lucky that I was with a group of teachers who really encouraged it and said, well, if you want to write drama and you're pretty good at it, just write drama. Um, and it was, yeah, during my latter years at secondary school that um, I thought, no, I can, yeah, I, I, could, I could be a dramatist, I could be a playwright. And I guess that, that kind of form, that, that's not, you're not taught how to write drama within GCSE English or Welsh, you know, it's not kind of taught where it should be because that, that's another medium just as short stories and novels are mediums. I don't see why that can't be explored within an educational setting. Um, you, you went to the University of Warwick. Um, and you did English and American literature. How, how do you think your term at uni kind of benefited you in your further career 
as a playwright? I chose the university and the course um, for quite interesting reasons, I think. It's, I, I wanted to study American literature because when I'd been studying drama, I'd studied um, people like Edward Albee, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, who I love. I love his plays. Me too. And um, I remember having a very... It was a seminal moment when... Um, the drama teacher I mentioned earlier oh. took us to see um, the Glass Menagerie at the Grand Theatre in Swansea. It was a production with Susanna York playing the mother in that play. And I remember sitting there and just being so affected by what I'd seen, not just the story and the writing, but the production and everything. Mm. And uh, from that point on, I could definitely map an interest in, first of all, American drama, but then... American literature so I had two things going on really I, I thought a lot about choosing a course where I could do some creative writing and also do a lot of American literature and uh, did my research chose my universities my five universities or however many and went to see some of them and got interviewed and I chose Warwick ultimately um, what was interesting during my time there was I think I'd arrived thinking I'm going to do a lot of creative writing courses um, and then realising I've got three years here where I can have access to uh, lecturers and teachers who know about literature from all over the world yeah. um, who are leading experts in Shakespeare for example because obviously Warwick is quite well, it's very close to Stratford-upon-Avon mm. and the links that they have with the RSC. And, and I just thought, I'm going to continue to write, but I'm not going to do it within an academic framework. And um, my time at university, really, um, when I finally realised what, uh, what a luxury it was to be able to spend all this time reading, which probably only happened during my second year. Um, the first year is a bit of a blur. But even still, it's quite like quite um, unusual that someone realizes that when they're in uni, because normally that realization happens once you've graduated, and you're like, "Oh, I had all that time to." Yeah, yeah. I've always been somebody. I think, and this is this is a bit of a curse. I think probably I've always been somebody who's had um, quite a lot of self awareness of mm. where where I am and um, of my context and um, absolutely during that time I thought right well I've got a choice here I can study um, 19th century European drama or 19th century European novels I chose novels because I thought I remember looking at the reading list and thinking I'm probably never going to read the uh, 22 European novels on this list. I'm never going to get... Well, I might get to it by the end of my life, but I thought I'm being <laughs> asked in a year to read um, Zola and Cervantes um, and just all these incredible European novelists. Um, I, I'd read most of the plays on the European drama list anyway, so yeah. I thought I'm going to throw myself into... In, into this um, and that's what that's what I did and during my time there as well I was I was writing and I was a member of a drama society and the drama society put some of my plays on um, so really I feel like my time at university exposed me to a lot of writers um, to a lot of literary theory which um, I've been able to to lean on during my career yeah. and development as a writer. Having that kind of knowledge, that academic knowledge of writers and texts, do you think, had you gone down and read the novels and gone on the novel kind of route, you would have end up, ended up being more of a novelist rather than a playwright? Um, the, the play 
writing, the dramatic, that, that sensibility is, it feels very strong, it feels very instinctive mm. within me, and I can't tell you why. I, often, I spoke to somebody a while ago, and, I, and if I had to pinpoint it, I think it's probably because I watched so much television growing up um, as a child and a teenager. Honestly, I watched hours and hours, and I'd watch any old rubbish. I was, re I was really, um, uh, I was, I was a, a kid who grew up in the eighties and watched a lot of TV. Probably in the same way that kids these days watch a lot of YouTube. Yeah. But um, I think just something about the grammar, about television and television drama, which is, which is stuck, which is stuck in yeah. my DNA now. And um, I'd, I'd love to write a novel. And I have, I started, we were on holiday in, um, in Greece a couple of years ago, and um, I've never been somebody who gets up early in the morning, but um, when we were in Greece, it was so hot, and the air conditioning was so bad in the room, I was finding myself waking at six in the morning, um, and I would go downstairs, and uh, um, it would be, be by myself, everyone else is in bed, and I'd start writing. So I have the beginnings of a novel, on my laptop, um, but um, I don't know. I've never I think the dedication you need mm. to be able. Well, the dedication to write anything is 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 tremendous. But I don't have the same momentum with writing that. And um, I've recently, because I'm horrified at the quality um, of some of the Welsh language novels which are available for young children i've recently started writing um um a book for my son as well because i want him to be able to read something in welsh which he's confident that he understands yeah and i think so many of the books um that children of that age are asked to read aren't necessarily written with um the young person in mind right um, so I'm I'm kind of I'm I'm get I'm getting there. I'll probably yeah. get there and I'll write something. Yeah. But as you can probably sense from the way I'm speaking about it, it's not something I'm massively confident about. Um, and if you know if you were to go and ask me to, to go and write a television script now, I'd be far more confident than you'd probably <laughs> have it in your inbox in seven days' time. Right. Um, and that's the other thing about but, drama, and that's the brilliant thing about television is that it's relatively quick. Yeah, you know, it's and it's to do with that collaboration. You're going to write something, and if it's going to get made, then you're going to have a director involved. You're going to have a stage manager involved. You're going to have cast involved, a producer, and you deliver that product together. Oh, um, on that, writing a novel is just you. On that, kind of, how early is that intervention in TV? You know, how often, how. Um, early does that intervention come in and is does it feel kind of that you as the writer that you haven't got that freedom to write what you want to write sometimes because of the nature of it um, there are obviously a lot of people involved in terms of the commissioning of a piece of work um, I've learned that actually there's not there's not a lot of point in you going and spending weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on something because if it's too developed um you've got you've got less of a chance of it getting made in tv uh the commissioners in tv they very much want to be there at the inception of an right. idea and they want to be able to influence that idea obviously if you've got a sense of what you're what you're writing um, you need to have a very clear idea of what it is, what you want to achieve, what you want to do, what the story is. But that can be in your head, that can be in a document. It doesn't necessarily have to be the script. So you would... really, if, if you're trying to get a script made, as opposed to having a sample of your writing to be able to show to people, um, I don't actually think you should go and write the whole thing because right. um, generally producers and um, commissioners don't don't like that. Now, obviously, I'm speaking as somebody who's got who's got some experience in television and is known to these people. So my 
my approach into that world would be quite different to, to somebody who's starting out or is has got less has got less experience. But um, but generally, because it is a collaborative um, it's a collaborative medium, um, I I think that I think that intervention and those conversations have to happen early if you've got a chance of getting it getting it made. So you might have episode outlines and character outlines and review series bible, but not full drafts of episodes written at that point. Yeah. Yeah, because it's uh, it, it becomes very quickly becomes a negotiation. So right. uh, you you go in and you say, I wanna do this and whoever you're talking to, whether it be a producer or a commissioner, will say, Ah, we've got something that's quite similar to this or what you've pitched isn't of interest to us because we know our audiences don't like X. But if you were to turn it on its head and give it a bit of Y and a bit of a bit of Z, that is something that we absolutely would want to talk to you about. Mm. So okay. you can spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks writing the very, very polished script about X only for them to say, ah, mm, sorry, no, we should have had more Y and Z. And if you, thinking selfishly as well, because we often as writers think of, I think some writers go into situations thinking, this is my considered work, and it is pretty much perfect, and I want you to put it on. Mm. Um, it's actually of benefit to the writer to have conversations very early or just speculative conversations with producers and commissioners yeah. so that we as writers don't waste time because we will be writing a lot of the time for no money. Um, yeah. The next thing that I do, um, I will start the development on it myself and there'll be periods when I won't expect to get paid because that's my process where I'm discovering it and making sure that I'm confident about what it is, because mm. I don't want to make a fool of myself either by going into a meeting or sending something off which is half-baked. Um, so rather than me spending two months doing that and getting it to quite a polished place, yeah. really, if I have the conversation early, I don't waste my time. And if they don't want it, they don't like it, I can go yeah. and find something new. That's true. But I guess you've got those links with um, producers, whereas for an emerging writer, it will be more difficult to find those links. And someone like me would be more likely to have something at the, at the inception of it, which is slightly less developed than something that maybe you would write or come up with. Yes. Yeah, and I, I think every writer, and I've got, I've got this as well, every writer should have a good sample of their work. And I remember talking to a very experienced writer about this when I was uh, starting out, and him saying to me, your sample should be, should be, it should reflect your voice as a writer, but also you should take it to places where you wouldn't normally ever go right. in terms of the ambition of the piece. Because as some writers think, well, I'm writing this sample as something which potentially could get made. And really, we should be thinking about our samples, scripts, as things that are never going to get made, but are going to make an impression on the reader so if you're a producer and you're looking for a writer, or you're looking for a project and you've got 20 scripts to get through, you want to make your mark, you want to have that producer think, wow, this is a really interesting voice. Because that producer probably isn't looking for, isn't expecting to stumble upon um, the series that they're going to make next. They're just looking for writers because they've got an agenda. They're going to find a writer, come to the agenda, um, take that agenda to to the writer and mm. say, I want to write something about um, young men in South Wales taking steroids. And there was something in your script which made me think you'd be the right person to take that on. And then... So I think, 
and then the idea which gets developed could be completely different from the spec script that the writers originally sent it in. Yeah, I, I think people think too much about this is my route to getting this idea made in television rather than yeah. what I need to be doing is building relationships. What I need to be doing is getting a foot in the door and getting to know people. Uh, because unlike theatre, um, let's be honest, you know, the stakes are so much higher in television yeah. when broadcasters are being asked to invest in a TV project. Um, you're going to you're going to want to make sure that you've development of that idea all the way through from its inception. Hopefully, it's ending up. Um, yeah. And um, I think differently to theatre, that actually for a writer, it's a much healthier thing if you want to if you want to work in TV to have some really good ideas, really good sample of your writing, than to have a back catalogue right. of, ten, of ten. 10 television scripts. Let's save time. Let's be kind to ourselves yeah. and, um, um, and and not not give ourselves um, um, loads and loads of work and waste our time doing scripts that, let's be honest, are never going to see the light of day. What's your process for structuring TV when you're writing a, a series? What's your process of structuring it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know if I have an actual process. Right. I've got tri I've got things that work for me. I've got um, little tricks and little um, yeah. I the longer or the way I'm looking at work at the moment now, the most important thing is story, and I think this is a failing, particularly amongst a lot of well, a lot of writers and. It's something that we're not particularly good at here in Wales as a community of writers. I think there's something about our culture here where we give more weight to the idea of character um, and dialogue. Whereas by this point in my career, and this may change and probably will as I get older, um, I think story is, is paramount. So I spend a lot of time working on story. I spend a lot of time just um, mulling over what the story is, why I want to tell the story, why the story is unique, and then mapping it. And I do that often, a lot of time. It's just me in my head thinking about stuff, lying awake at night and um, uh, going for walks and sitting in coffee shops. And it's just, you know, it comes, it comes back to you. And you start to have realizations about, well, actually, it'd be more interesting if I did this than that. And the most important yeah. thoughts that you have about a project, they stay with you. Um, and at some point during that yeah. process of, think, of thinking and imagining, I'll start to write things down. Do and I will do, do that strangely, because I'm not, I'm not an artist. I can't draw. I can't do anything like that, really. But I will do that in quite a visual way. Mm -hmm. So um, down in my office, I've got a wall um, which is completely blank and uh, it's covered in blue tack marks because I'll often write ideas and beats in the story on um, record cards and then I'll stick them up. And what I like doing is going to WH Smith or wherever and getting a big roll of white paper um, and I'll, 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 I'll rip out big sheets of that paper and I'll take a sharpie and I'll start making marks and arrows and squiggles and little sketches mm -hmm. and, and things so that I'm able to think about story in quite a fluid way. Okay. And once I feel I've got a shape, a shape for that story, and I feel like it's starting to... It's like, like making bread. I so think, so it's, it's... You kind of, you put... It's not episodic at this point. You haven't broken it up. No. Right. No. So I get an arc. I work out what the arc is. Um, and I will get those ingredients, I guess. I think that process of thinking and uh, sketching is about getting the ingredients. And then they start to bind together. And at some point where I feel they're starting to stick, um, I will sit down 
and I will write the story. Right. Um, and that story might only be four or five pages because that's all I've got. Um, or it may be as with the the last series of Bang that um, I wrote. Um, I think that was like 40-something pages. So I had a really clear sense of what the story of the world and uh, what was going to happen, really. Um, but that was kind of, for me, that was so that I had a sense of, very strong sense about what it was. And I don't necessarily show that to anyone. That's, that's, that's for me. Yeah. But then when I want to have a conversation with somebody, I might only, I might only send them three pages. Um, because the more stuff you send to people the more exposed you are for them to take an opinion on it. And that goes back to yeah. what I'm saying about people very much want to be in on the journey from the inception of the idea. So if you go to somebody and you say, I'd like to do this, they're, go they're going to turn around and say to you, can I see something on paper? So you can send them two pages or three pages. And then that allows them, without being, without finding anything in the document which mm. prejudices them, to come back and say, "I like this. Can I see some more? Or can so, I option this? Can I give you a thousand pounds to be able to see a more detailed treatment?" So that gives you time as well, and it gives you somebody to talk to about the project who's going to say, as I said previously, yeah. "I really like it, but can we have a bit more Y and Z?" And then you start to fold mm. that into the idea as it develops. And at some point, and this comes from, because I've worked on, I've worked on soaps and I've worked on, on other long running series, you get a sense, and because I've watched a heck, heck of a lot of TV and kind of understand the grammar of television, you get a sense about how much material you need to contain in an episode. And you get a sense of, um, where you need there to be a cliffhanger. Um, yeah, and, and you, like, kind of come to understand the kind of geography or how that series works, and you adapt the way you write to fit with the yeah. series that you're writing yeah. for. Yeah, yeah, so you get a sense of all those things, um, and that's when you, well, that's when I like to start writing now. Lots of producers won't let you do that because they want you to go and give them what they call a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown. Yeah. So they want to have an, a incredibly detailed document which says, scene one, Tony's house, morning. Tony is sitting by the table. His wife comes in and they have a conversation about who's going to take their, their dog for a walk that morning. I... Um, and a brick comes through the window. I don't see the point of doing that. I really hate doing that because I think it kills creativity. I think it, it kills the experience for me completely. But lots of producers love them because they are able to keep control of the structure of a script without yeah. waiting for the 60-page document to land in their inbox. States taught me in uni you have to do an outline, then you have to do a scene by scene, and then you have to do a script. And if that works for states, Great. But, you know, I think it's quite um, constrictive, you know, I think there's not much room. Yes, you get the story of the episode outlined, but there's no creativity in there. And I don't, I mean, I understand why people do it and work for some mm. writers. They really like to, to, to map in that really scientific way, but... Um, I've worked as a showrunner as well on things and um, I've seen how a writer who's written a third draft, third draft, surprising <laughs> document um, and follows that to the letter when they've yeah. written their first draft of the script is then told, yeah, the structure doesn't work or, oh, well, God. Why have we wasted, not wasted, but why have we taken three weeks to a month to get to a point where we're meant to be looking at structure and discovering what the dynamic of this story is mm. to allow someone to write a script based on those foundations and then turn around and tell them, well, actually, no, this doesn't work after all. It, 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 to, to me, um, it's not the best way of working, but it is yeah. largely across the industry 
the perceived best method for getting something done. Now, I'm to, I talk as somebody who for the last few years has been lucky enough to be um, writing my own stuff. So, um, you know, I have been in a situation where I've been able to turn around and say to people, I don't do... I don't do scene by scene structures. I don't do scene by scene breakdown. Sorry, yeah. um, but I probably, you know, who knows? The next job I do might be for somebody else, a yeah. different producer, and I will be expected to do it, and I will do it. Yeah. But I think if, if you go into it, and a lot of writers when they're starting out, they don't realise this. You go into it knowing that um, the only person at this point who really carries the story and holds the story and knows what the story is going to be is the writer so yeah. you jump through these hoops and you do these things and you try and make it the best it can be um in scene by scene in scene by scene um in its in its genesis in a scene by scene document um but actually just be confident that you're holding that story in your head and at some point you're going to get to write it your way yeah, um, yeah, that's really, really lovely advice, actually. Um, I'd like to talk about Bang. Um, why did you decide to set it in Port Albert? And did you feel kind of a pressure to present an authentic representation of the town? I think that setting Bang in Vitalva was probably one of the best decisions that I made on the project. I started out on that project, um, which is interesting in terms of the conversation we just had about commissioners and how you get work made. Yeah. Um, I'd gone into that project having written quite a successful short drama series for S4C called Tyr, which means land, and it was based on a theatre production that um, I'd made for theatre Gennett Lathal, the Welsh language national theatre company and um, I wanted to make more tír and um, I had this idea that um, each series would follow a different character in the family. It was basically a farming family. The father had died suddenly and the children had to decide what they were going to do with the farm and each child had their own take on what they were going to do with the farm and one of the sons who had very much wanted to inherit the farm but hadn't he found himself um out of work and having an opportunity to um steal and um, um make some money for his young family and we followed over three hours his journey um to to commit a crime and then the repercussions of that yeah. and the impact that his crime had on his family um, and it was all set in Carmarthenshire and it looked beautiful and the performances were amazing um, everyone was very happy with it so mm. I went to the commissioner saying right I want to do more of this and the second series is going to be based on the other brother and this is the story um, yeah. and she said to me oh, no I've decided I only want um, I only want there to be crime drama for the next um, two years. And um, I love what you've created here, and the audience do, and the performances are wonderful, but um, I'm sorry, but I don't want it. So come back to me with a crime idea. And I was like, oh, do you know what? I, oh, crime drama, I don't, I don't want to do crime drama. Um, and thought long and hard about it as a proposition. How do you write a crime drama when... All the work you've done to date really has been about characters, it's yeah. been about people and communities and families. Um, how do you do that? And um, it's upon this idea really about creating a drama series about a gun and um, looking at how a gun might influence somebody's mindset who'd never before held a gun and how that would track through in terms of what they might do with a gun. Um, and kind of fell in love with that idea, really, about looking at the impact that um, criminality and criminal behaviour has on a person and their psychology. And this Patalbert thing happened after 
the idea was pretty much developed and I knew that it would need to be or I wanted it to be quite an urban story and I live in Neath and at that time we had a uh, um, a Patterdale Terrier who we'd t- pretty much take to the beach every every weekend mm-hmm. in Aberavon and we were walking the beach in Aberavon one, one Sunday and I was looking around at the steelworks in the distance and the cranes in the docks in Batalbert yeah. and across to the mountains and the forestry of Avonargoid and the beach, the long beautiful beach and I thought why has nobody set anything in Vitalba, I, I couldn't really think of an idea which had um, used Vitalba as Vitalba on television before. I could think of things that had been shot there, but not things which were located there. I see what and, you mean. Um, so, not used. Because it's quite a kind of juxtaposition, Vitalba. Because you've got the mountains, you've got the beaches, this lovely kind of natural landscape. But juxtaposed then by this really imposing steelworks, this kind of post-industrial town that is in contrast to everything else that's there. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And um, that was one of the big draws then, because you realise this is a place that lots of people know about because they watch the news and they hear about um, Mm. The concern people have about the steelworks and Tata pulling out and what would happen to Patalbert in that situation or people know about Michael Sheen and they watch documentaries about Michael Sheen coming home to Patalbert and doing the passion and that kind of thing um, and loads of people pass through Patalbert you know mm. hundreds of thousands of people probably every day do that journey on the M4 or they travel on the train through Patalbert but um how many people actually know the town, how many people get off um, and explore the town. And that was one of the big, important decisions with it, was we actually, we can set something in a town that people think they know, but don't. And we can show them the, the beauty of the area, the ugliness, the ugly beauty of the industrial side. We can take them from the coast to high up into the forests mm. in the mountains, we can go under that motorway, where which people probably don't think about, but under that motorway, the pillars of that road, a lot of them are planted in people's back gardens. You know, there's this whole other world that people don't know about. There's a, on that. There's a half, half a street in... Um, um, New Target, uh, um, not Target, but in town then, which was destroyed for the motorway to get there, which people don't know about, which people don't think about, as you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. They took one side of the street away, so there would have been families who lived on both sides of the street um, when they decided to take the, um, the northern half of that mm. street away. Um, those people were all relocated and given other homes to homes to live in, and their families who lived on the southern side of that street continued to live there and probably still continue to live there to this day, staring at these big concrete pillars that hold the M4 up. So I just thought it's a very interesting place that hasn't been used on TV before. Um, incredibly problematic, I thought, because here I am. Um, trying to make a drama series in Welsh in a town where um, very few people speak Welsh. How did you um, manage that, was... that in terms of um, realism, like the realism of it? Yeah, no, um, uh, not really, if I'm honest. I think um, what I didn't know I was doing, which was interesting to have it pointed out to me, was actually I was... Um, I was giving voice to a section of society or I was representing a section of society which um, doesn't really get seen on TV that much. Um, This is, you know, kind of like the the disenfranchised, I guess, or what you might now deem the the working class or, 
you know, like a population in a place which doesn't have very much money, really, um, and, you know, representing that section of society in a way which was kind of, it wasn't being done through the, through a character who was an outsider, or wasn't being done in a way with a character who was middle class. It was very much, you know, especially the first series, well, actually the second as well, actually, it's, it kind of, the stories were very much coming from that section of society, and they were the lead characters. Yeah. And that isn't something that um, you see very much on TV, because you usually, when you have a crime drama, you have the detective coming in who, you know, is on a, a healthy income and is a bit yeah. of an outsider and is looking down on these people. Whereas what we successfully did with the show, I think, was have um, have a member of that community who'd been born and brought up within that community leading the investigation, which enabled us to contain it and and have um, characters from that from that world um, be principal characters. Um, yeah. And then, you know, you kind of, I kind of, I talked about story earlier and um, where I am now, uh, although I'm incredibly fond of, well, I live nearby, but I'm incredibly fond of Batalbert and his people, they're fantastic, fantastic people. I think once you take on responsibility to kind of represent that real community, um, it's very problematic because what I've created is fiction. And I'm very clear that it's fiction. And we see Batalbert and we see the world of Batalbert. Yeah. Um, but this is a version of Batalbert that lives inside my head where um, an awful lot of people speak Welsh um, when in Batalbert they, they don't. It's your. Um, lots of other... It's a version of Batalbert that you've created and no one can create a truly authentic version of Batalbert because. Pitoba isn't, isn't a concept, it's a place, so you were never going to be entirely accurate, just as I, someone from Pitoba, cannot create an entirely accurate representation of it. So, yeah. you know, do you know what I'm saying? I, 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 know, I know absolutely what you're saying, and I think that um, some people... Some people talk about drama as though it needs to be a reflection of real, of real life. Yeah. I don't know how you do that. No. I think it's a myth. I think it comes from the days when Coronation Street was seen as, as, as reflecting reality. Um, you can't, you we all, can't do it. We all have our own, own realities. Yeah. Somebody, I know somebody who comes from a Talbot and thinks that it's the best place on earth and is kind of blind to some of the negative things yeah. that, let's be honest, every place has its negatives. Definitely. Um, Definitely. But I know somebody else who absolutely grew up there who hates it and says they will never go back. So, <laughs> I mean, whose who's reality, yeah. whose vision of the town is correct? What I've created is a, is a confection, really, which takes Batalbert as a backdrop, um, a, communi a community and has inspired has inspired yes. a work of, of fiction because that's you know it's a story about a man who runs around but with a gun you know it's <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's not real it's not real before we finish i just wanted to ask you one more thing and it's about welsh language theater um do you think it's becoming more representative of contemporary wales and less socially conservative with, you know, the recent productions of your play, North Adam and Heat, which was um, translated from English, and also pieces like Sleuth um, by Dal, both of which um, are representative of the LGBT community. Do you think Welsh language theatre is becoming more representative and inclusive or do you think that there's still a way to go? I think compared to where it was it's come on in leaps and bounds 
And I think this is one of the interesting things for me about um, specifically the Welsh language side of theatre. Because there isn't a huge canon of classic plays, I think Welsh language theatre and Welsh language culture, theatrical culture, has generally been looking for new voices and has been looking for what's coming next because they couldn't rely on the back catalogue in the same way that um, um, English language culture and other cultures have been able to do. Um, and, you know, there was a time, I remember when I first started writing, when I first got involved in Welsh theatre, and this is true of English language theatre in Wales as well, it was kind of dominated by um, middle-aged, heterosexual white men. Mm. And um, they, you know, they were writing, on the whole, they were writing very good plays. Um, but when I started kind of getting involved in that world age 20, 21, um, there were there were hardly any any women. I think the only woman I could name who was who was writing at that time, well, she was only starting to write, but that was Helen Griffin, um, who was better known as as as, as an actor. Um, I couldn't have named you any any gay or lesbian writers from that time at all. So there is a diversity um, in terms of writers of Welsh language theatre. I think particularly interestingly in terms of um, LGBTQ writers, it seems to me that um, um, they're probably overrepresented <laughs> when you look at people like Dav and myself and Bethan Marlowe and Alan Saunders, um, people like Serial Davis making work, people like Mark Rees making work. It just feels as though, you know, a lot of those people who are leading on Welsh language work um, are from the LGBTQ um, mm. um, community. Uh, and that's great. That's, 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 br that's brilliant. But then um, I think you look at um, other sectors of society and it's trickier. It, it, you know, when you, if you were to look at um, BAME writers who are writing in Welsh, mm. I couldn't name you one. I couldn't, you know, no. I couldn't point to somebody um, who's, do, who's doing that. And, um, or disabled think, writers uh, either. Don't know no. any disabled writers who write in the Welsh language. I think we need, yeah. you know, this talk about specific incentives for specific groups. Like the chairman have got um, a programme targeted towards female writers now. Do you think it would be an idea to introduce new writers to Welsh language theatre to have targeted incentives towards certain groups? Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's um, it's really important. I started writing, I was writing anyway, but I guess I had my first foot in the door because an artistic director of a theatre company called Made in Wales, which doesn't exist anymore, said, um, I want to find alternative voices. Um, he'd come to Cardiff to do the job and had met all the writers who were middle-aged, white, heterosexual men and said, I think your work's great, but I won't be commissioning you. Um, and he went and he started uh, writing groups in central Cardiff for black and Asian writers. He set up a women's writing group and was actively looking for people who didn't fit that, that kind of norm, really, of the white yeah. heterosexual middle-class men. Now, I say that, there are some awful, there's some really, really good writers who are white, straight, middle-class, middle middle-aged men. I'm not, I'm not saying otherwise, but um, it's kind of, as we're aware in this day and age, the, their success squeezes out opportunity for people who may be considered marginal or not part of that club. And I think Welsh Language Theatre, not by design, um, has done quite well on the on the gay and lesbian front. Uh, it wasn't part of the plan, I don't think. It's just happens. It just it's just kind of happened that a load of people who have 
who are of that group have um, come through with really exciting ideas. And uh, I think that's what's key to it, in a sense. It's having ideas mm. that re reflect that that authentic reality. Yeah. So if you were to look at my early plays, were to look at Dab's plays like Lloyd and Taloith, um I mean, no further than is about homophobic hate crime and I suppose to see that because um, it was originally in English wasn't it um, do you think there was a difference in terms of reaction to it between when it was Saturday Night Forever and when it was North Adam and Hayden Welsh I don't think there was a difference in reaction to it um which is troubling <laughs> because I first wrote that play in 1998 um, and here we are over 20 years later and um, homophobic hate crime is still a problem um, and um, I tend to think about I tend to think about Welsh language society being I don't think Welsh language society is more homophobic than than any other society, but I think there is, um, you know, this kind of uptightness about um, Welsh language society, where you know we don't want to talk about we don't want to talk about sex generally, and we certainly don't want to talk about um, sex that we don't have experience of or don't know much about. Mm -hmm. So that whole um, idea of the queer is kind of hidden hidden away. Um, and that's that's what's so wonderful about Dav James coming along and um, talking about gay sex in very 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 explicit terms mm. on the main the main stages of our theatres to audiences of over four hundred people a pop. Um, mm. You know, I I don't you know it's ex it exposes it exposes those issues in a very real, very very funny, mm. emotional, um, celebratory way, um, and that's why getting those kind of I'm going to use the words mar I don't think I don't mean marginal, but I'm going to use the word marginal anyway. But get having those other diverse voices on stage is so important because. Mm -hmm. David um, and other people who've written in that space um, have enabled um, people to kind of just, just dispel the myth, just yeah. dispel the myth and get those things out of there. But they come from, if you think about it, they come from a very authentic place. And so, you know, I think this, this, the way in which um, writers probably are going to open those doors for themselves are to bring their, their, their authentic stories that only they can write about from their experience to to the to the stage yeah um, and that's I think that is the way to do it absolutely companies and funders they should all be enabling um, people to have that entry point mm -hmm. which is incredibly difficult but then I think the way to make sure that um, you get in and stay in and are able to have a career. That it's by... not tokenistic. How do you do it without it feeling tokenistic and without it being tokenistic? That, I think, is is the, is the battle, then. How do you provide genuine opportunities? If, if you are the theatre company, if you're the theatre again, if you're the chairman, how do you provide these opportunities without it seeming like they are in any way tokenistic? Do you know what I, I mean? I think, yeah, I know absolutely what you mean. And I think the way to, the, the way of doing that is to prove that you're a bloody good writer. You know, I think yeah. it comes down to, it's, it goes back to what I said earlier about um, when you go to meet television producers, make sure they've, they've read your best piece of sample writing. It's like you have that opportunity to write something um, and 
you present them with a piece of work which you know is really, really good. Um, and the kind of work that nobody else could have written as well, yeah. which is where, which is what has given rise to, to Dab's success with Lloyd and Telloyd, is that, um, that it's his voice talking about subject matter that, um, you know, you won't mind me saying, a lot of the stuff in Telloyd and Lloyd is not fiction. <laughs> Those things have happened to him, they've, ha- they've happened to his friends. And he's reflecting that back through drama. Um, now, if you were to ask him to write a play uh, uh, on a subject that he didn't have experience of, it wouldn't resonate in the same no. in the same way. So, you know, to to get that access, to get that opportunity, the the only way I think to kind of, um, well, not the only way, but but the, but the key decision in order to make sure that you keep that foothold and get a production and then are able to build upon that is to keep giving them work which is true and honest yeah. and the kind of work that nobody else can, can, can offer them. Finally, when I, I mean, you've already given loads of advice in the podcast already, but my final question would be, um, if you could have been told one piece of advice uh, when you were starting out, um, or if you could have given yourself one piece of advice when you were starting out, what would it have been? Um, I think I'm told that I'm pretty good at this, so, um, but I know that it's something other writers aren't very good at. So I'm going to give a piece of advice is to listen when people are giving an opinion on your work and don't get defensive about it. Um, I've been in, I've, I've been somebody who's had to read scripts for uh, television companies and worked on shows where I've had to have an opinion on somebody's script. And it's interesting how some writers are unable to take that criticism. And the criticism is only an opinion. It's only an opinion. Yeah. And the best piece of advice I was given along the way was just sit back, listen to what's being said, don't think that you have to make all of the changes that they might be suggesting to the script, just listen at that meeting or during that conversation, walk away, distill everything that's been said about your work, and then go back to it a couple of days later and the most important, the most important and inspirational parts of that criticism will stay with you. They will remain with you, and then you can go on and do your redraft. Yeah. Um, without panicking and thinking, I've got, I've got fifty things I need to mm. change, because some of those things w- won't have been thought through in the same level of detail that you've already thought them through. They will have knock-on effects which undermine other parts of the script that you're trying to write. So go into those meetings listening to what people have to say and um, giving yourself the chance to distill it and just remembering that you're the writer. You know, you, yeah. you are the conduit at that point for that fictional world, everyone's opinions about, about what's being said. Um, and um, you just need to be confident that you're able to deliver a script based on everyone's opinions whilst being true to the story and the world that you know inside out. It can be difficult to have that balance, especially when you're starting out, when you go into the room and everyone's far more experienced than you and you think, oh, I'm a new writer, these dramatists and script editors have been doing it for years. I should listen to them because they've got more experience. For me, anyway, it's difficult to have that confidence or self-confidence in your own work when the people in that room have been doing it for 20-odd years. Do you know what I mean? I do, I do know what you mean. I do know what you mean. But at the same time, I've seen so many writers mess things up for themselves because... 
they've listened to all the advice they've been given in that room. Right. And you're right, it's a really, really delicate balance between being able to very deftly understand what's being said. And often it's not being said explicitly, it'll be the, no. the subtext of, of what's being talked about. But to be able to listen to that and then apply it to what you've written. But I would also say that if you're dealing with dramaturgs and producers, these are people who are not writing. These are not people who are practicing the craft. They are people mm. who are able to analyze in their own terms of reference what a good script is. Um, but they don't necessarily know how to fix it. <laughs> okay. um, and you as the writer, you've spent, you have spent, it's a fact, you've spent a heck of a lot more time thinking about, thinking about these people and this world and this story and you probably don't have all the answers yet and you absolutely will get really good notes that turn your script from being okay to being really good but part of your toolkit needs to be able to um, sort the sort the weed from the shaft in yeah. terms of um, what's being what's being said about it as well but go listen think about it if you need to go back and interrogate some of those ideas a couple of days later do that um, but don't start at picking your script until you've had a good chance mm. to consider what's been said and don't be defensive there's nothing nothing worse in in terms of writers who go in and say i'm not changing anything this is great yeah. you know there's that sort of level of defense which just turns everybody off because we are dramatists, we are working in a collaborative genre. It's an art for art form which is collaborative. So if we aren't gonna collaborate, then to go back to where we started, I should well, probably go and write yeah. that novel. Thank Even then I'll have an editor telling me, Oh, you know what, yeah. this is too long, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> Everyone has an opinion and you we just gotta acknowledge that and um, and listen to those opinions and do the best work that we can. That's all we can do. Thank you, Roger. It's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, on the next episode of In Lockdown With, I'm going to be chatting to Gethin Evans, who is the artistic director of Comedy of Brown Wen, who is based in North Wales. So I look forward to speaking to you then. For now, it's goodbye from me. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Lockdown With. The podcast is written, produced and curated by me, Kieran Fitzgerald. Thank you to all my guests for taking the time to appear on the show. If you enjoyed this episode of In Lockdown With, please consider liking or subscribing on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And I'll see you next time for another interview.